What up, though, One Pride? This is the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, the podcast where One Pride goes worldwide. My name is Anthony Fitzpatrick. I'm joined this evening by Ryan McCluskey, which can only mean one thing. Yes, it is another edition of the College Football Podcast. Ooh la la. Um, Ryan, it's, it's all over. In many senses of the word, the college football season is over. The championship games have been played. The greatest dynasty of all time in college football, potentially, is over. And the new guy's already been chosen to succeed this. And and we are on the path to the draft. How how time flies from a season that felt like it started a month ago. Yeah, a lot uh, a lot has happened between now and then that's come this place. It's a, a lot of predictions, uh, an unexpected Final Four two great games and a very deserving winner in the ending, yeah. And then we get the news just 24 hours ago that's kind of shaken the landscape. And right now, the aftermath, like say, it's we get the tremors after the earthquake and we're about to get a big tremor, like say, a potential higher. So, yeah, we're going to feel the change of the landscape very much now. So next season is going to be truly fascinating. Absolutely. Let's say just... Even in the in the NFL, in college, the superpowers are dying out and new powers are rising and it is always a really fun way of change there for us all. But yeah, that's, we're, we're going to be going through today. So like I say, the season is over now. The two championship games were played the weekend just gone. We will talk about those a little bit later on. We will also talk about the big news that has happened in the coaching world as well. But... Like I mentioned, as soon as we came on air, we are now on the path to the draft, our favourite time of the year, where we get to start focusing on the players, not so much on the teams. And today we're going to be starting what will be the first of many shows, looking at many, many prospects here as the All-Star Game season is set to begin tomorrow, technically already on place with the week in progress already. And that, of course, is the Hula Bowl, the first All-Star Game of them all. It's a, it's a it's a game where you'll get a lot of FCS players, small school players, prospects who you won't really have heard of unless you're a diehard college fan like us to hear. So, you know, we're going to be, for the next two shows, we're going to be dissecting that roster down. We're going to be looking at the offense today, and then we're going to be looking at the defense next time out because there's 131 players at this thing. So trying to fit it all into one show is just crazy because you want to at least try and talk about the players a bit, not just name them because that would be a show in itself. So, yeah, we're going to be reviewing the Hula Bowl offensive roster today. And as I say, we're going to go through the championship games. We're going to go through the coaching eyes. That is what you've got from us. Uh, let me just get all the housekeeping out of the way. And then we're going to dive straight down into this. So, Royal Lines UK Discord, if you want in, let us know. We'll send you a link. Main podcast went live yesterday. Um, so we're doing this on a Friday on the college pod. It is playoff week 
for the Detroit Lions. We are playing the LA Rams in Detroit on Sunday, which is going to be one of the biggest games of our life as Lions fans. So go check that out. We had a great guest on with us who knew everything about the Rams. It was good fun. So if you're not seeing it, go check it out there. Don't forget to like and sub everything. Twitch, YouTube. Don't forget about Lions Nation Unite. Sub to that as well. We're an affiliate on Twitch. We're YouTube monetized. We're going to tip jars. So if you want to help us that way, great. But we just appreciate you having having you all in the building with us. And don't forget the feedback form as well if you want to fill that in and let us know of any changes or additions to the show's right. We've got that all out of the way. So for the first time, we're going to lead off and we're going to talk about the All-Star Games because we've spent the last several months, as I say, talking about the teams, the conferences, all that spiel. It's going to be nice to talk about some players for a change. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to go through the roster position by position, just tell you a little bit about the players and then me and Ryan have sort of picked some guys we want to tell you a bit more about in depth because if we did everyone in depth, We'd be here till next Friday, just doing the offense alone. So that's how things are going to go here. So just a quick shakedown on the Hula Bowl. So I said it is the first stop on the path to the draft. It has been classified as an all-star game since the 1960s. But this thing goes back years, back to like the 20s and the 30s. Originally, it was a collegiate all-star team would travel out to Hawaii and they would face a local Hawaii team there at the end of the season and sort of like a an exhibition game, uh, but then it turned into NFL players were allowed to join on the Hawaiian side because it used to be so one-sided. And then over time, as it went on, it became classified as the all-star game that we know now for the vast majority of its tenure. It's been played out in Hawaii, but since 2022, it's been located in Florida and it will continue to be there for the foreseeable future. Um, showcase for aspiring draft talent as all the all-star games are always features a contingent of Polynesian players with ties to the Hawaiian Islands. And it also features international players from Japan, uh, but they're on the defensive side of the ball. So you'll get to hear about them in the next episode. So something a little bit different there. The players are split down into two teams. So those are Team Einar and Team Kai. Einar is the Hawaiian word for land. Kai, the Hawaiian word for water. So it's Land versus water in the spirit of things there. That is a little bit of a breakdown on the hula ball there. So let's go straight down into the roster and we'll talk about the quarterbacks first. So six quarterbacks on show here and there'll not be any of the ones you've heard mentioned in terms of the draft this year. These are the outside guys, but with Brock Purdy, now everybody's looking for the next big thing that no one's talking about in the draft cycle. So the three quarterbacks on Team Einar are John Reese Plumley from UCF, Ben Bryant from Northwestern, and Spencer Sanders from Ole Miss. So Plumley, you'll have heard about from us plenty. He is the dual threat guy, six foot, one hundred and ninety nine pounds. Had three years at Ole Miss. He was the backup to Matt Corral there, now in the NFL. But he played most of his true freshman year due to injury. Had nine hundred yards and one nine hundred passing yards, one thousand rushing yards. But the other two were sat behind Corral, so he moved to UCF. He's a two-year starter there. 
Uh, that UCF offense has been explosive. He has 5,000 passing yards on 62% throwing, 29 touchdowns, 16 interceptions, 1,500 rushing yards, 16 touchdowns, but 15 fumbles as well. Bryant is the six foot three, two hundred and twenty pound quarterback from Northwestern. He's the stand and deliver pocket passer and the six year senior. Spent three years backing up at Cincinnati. Then he was a one year starter at Eastern Michigan. One year starter at Cincinnati. One year starter at Northwestern. In the three starting years, he's had seven thousand eight hundred yards on sixty four percent passing, forty eight touchdowns, twenty interceptions. He's got six rushing touchdowns and sixteen fumbles. Spencer Sanders, on the other hand, he's another dual threat guy. Four years starter at OK State. Went and sat on the bench at Old Miss for a year, surprisingly. Don't know why. Nine and a half thousand passing yards on 61% completion. 67 touchdowns to 40 interceptions. 2,200 rushing yards. 18 touchdowns, but 23 fumbles. Um, First sort of slate of quarterbacks there, I I can't remember who you said you were going for. So you've got Plumley in this here, but we've got a couple of dual threats. We've got a stand and deliver QB, and I know Plumley was the one that you you focused on. Yeah, so <clears throat> Plumley is an interesting character because he is the definition of a two sport guy. He is like Kyler Murray, so. He actually has played 105 baseball games across his time at Ole Miss and UCF as a centre fielder who also pitched while also playing football. So he was a busy boy. I read one article that said he played a game of baseball. He didn't even change. He jumped straight in his car and drove all the way back to campus for spring practice to play in one of the games, I believe, in that first year at UCF. So he's very committed. So, as you mentioned, small He's compact. He's got a pretty lively, fast arm with some decent accuracy. He would flourish in a scheme that does offer designed runs. Ultimately, he's a guy that does need the capability to stretch players outside of the pocket. He probably had a chance at the MLB draft that I've read, but he decided to focus solely on the NFL. And I feel like he's the kind of guy you will see on players where you have two quarterbacks on the field. You split him out. Someone's going to find some way to use him. Because, like I say, he's a pretty athletic kid. He's a, a few fumbles here and there. Yeah, sometimes he's had issues with ball security, but has run one of like a top six power rushing offense this year in the nation with the Knights. So he's experienced. He's got okay size for the position. It will hurt him being like six foot. But this kind of guy's like, oh, can just do anything you ask of him? And he will be quite physical. You will have him as a, a running back. Also, maybe wildcat snaps because he's got reasonable speed as well, so he's pretty athletic. So I feel like he's a, a good, well-rounded character in the uh, in the passing game, but also as a a guy that will make you punish if, like, say your defense falls over or loses contain. He will just get head down and go and plow forward. So yeah, he's he's got some bravery and balls, which I do like about him. Um, now that you said that, wasn't he the one who did the video of him at, at batting practice? for baseball and then he gets on the back of one of those like carts and they cart him off to football practice. I feel like that was yeah. him that he did that. Yeah. When you said that it kinda of like, oh yeah, that was that was him who did that. But he is a very intriguing prospect, isn't it? Again, people trying to find the next birdie, they know they can find guys late in the draft and that dual threat ability is it's intriguing. Not Kyler Murray, it? Yeah. 
He's got the Kyla Mirror kind of story. He's no. got the build, and uh, they do say that playing baseball is good for a quarterback. Russell Wilson played baseball, didn't he? I think so. Like, yes, it he does did. help for the iron. Yeah, they do like that kind of thing about them. Yeah. Um, outside of that, obviously, Sanders. He's another dual threat quarterback, but. His, his move to Old Miss is so weird because he sat there and done nothing a year now and not been able to alleviate those turnover concerns. Like I say, 70 of them. That's, that's like way too many. Yeah, and he's older, Spencer Sanders. I, I, if I had to guess, I'd say he's the oldest by far of all the quarterbacks in this room. I didn't understand the Old Miss transfer either, knowing they had Jackson Dart and they already had uh, Howard, uh, Walk Howard. So, yeah, it was a very odd move. Like he basically went somewhere the way he knew there was a good chance he wasn't going to start and wasted a year of eligibility. So he kind of screams like clipboard holder, quarterback three, like I say, even at the pros, which there's not wrong with it. But like I say, a couple of years ago, I saw a promise in him that it's kind of just tailed off. Yeah. Like I say, he's boom or bust. Yeah. He can go out there and throw four touchdowns and goes out there. And we've seen like in the uh, championship game. Like I say, in the last couple of years, like struggles in big games and can make Costco turnovers. Yeah. And then Ben Bryant, he's just one that he's struggled to find a home. Three teams in three years. That's worrying. Like I say, he's never settled anywhere. He's hit the portal as soon as like the season's kind of over. He just feels like a journeyman. So yeah, it's a very interesting group. You're going to get quite a mixed bag of results because they all offer something pretty different. It was so weird. Like Ben Bryant was so loyal to Cincy when he was sat behind Ridder. But then when he got a starting job, he's like, no, I'm just going to move. Like, screw it. I've waited three years for a starting job, then I'm just going to move. It's 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 an odd one there. Anywho, moving on. The quarterbacks for Team Kai. Carter Bradley from South Alabama. Jack Plummer, everybody's favourite on here from Louisville. And Davius Richard from North Carolina Central, who hopefully we're going to hear a lot more about going forward. But Bradley... He's another sixth-year senior pocket passer. He's 6'3", 216 pounds. Spent four years in and around the Toledo team before transferring for his last two years to South Alabama. He took off there 6,000 passing yards on 65% passing, 47 touchdowns to just 19 interceptions. He's got two rushing touchdowns. He's fumbled it 13 times. Uh, he's got 300 yards on the ground. Really a stand-and-deliver guy there. Plummer is a fifth-year guy. 6'5", 215 pounds. He's big for a quarterback. He started as a redshirt freshman at Purdue, but then he saw just three games in his second year. Then he got benched for Aiden O'Connell after four games in year three. Transferred to Cal, got the starter job there. 3,100 yards, 21 touchdowns and nine picks before transferring to Louisville after one year to be their starter. And they got all the way to the ACC title game. He had... 3,200 yards, 21 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. He rushed for 400 yards and a couple of rushing scores, but he had 10 fumbles on the ground over the last two years as well. And then Davius Richard is the wild card. 6'3", 215 pounds. Our good friend Gerald Huggins over at HBCU Nightly and him of he scouts at the East-West Shrine Bowl and everything. He loves this quarterback coming out and you can see why so davis richard he's a four-year guy at nc central it's technically five in total due to covid they didn't play that year he's thrown for seven thousand eight hundred yards 
on 57% completion, but that is up to 63 in the last two years. It was really bad when he first started off. Got 64 touchdowns and 24 interceptions. He's got 2,300 yards on the ground with 44 touchdowns. That's just rushing touchdowns alone and 22 fumbles. But in the last two years, it's 33 rushing touchdowns and just five fumbles. His game has improved in all facets dramatically these last two years. The passing accuracy is up nigh on 7% and the rushing is just extraordinary. But another intriguing set here, you've got two older guys, or you've got three older guys, really, Davis, which I think he's 23, but... You've got the surprise maybe out of the HBCU dual threat guy and a couple of older guys who've sort of been there, done that, had a bit of success as well. Yeah, I, I think this group to me is more interesting. Like you say, I've never been super high on Plummer, but he's probably been the, the most successful of all the quarterbacks we've named, I suppose. He's had some good seasons with good touchdown exception radio. And if you're looking to build a prototypical pocket passer, He's got the frame. He's got what you want. He's got the size. He's got the decent arm. And this year, yeah, he led Louisville to a, like a being like a top 10 team in the nation, which I suppose can't really be overlooked. But Davius, I suppose, is the one you really want to see. Small school kid. A lot of people don't know about him. Still as well, a good build. 6'3", like 2'13". But just so elusive when he decided to tuck and run like... He, he runs like he is half the size he plays at. He's elusive. He's hard to tackle. But down at the goal line, he's physical. He'll put his body on the line. He will, like, eke out every yard. And he can also throw the ball as well. So he offers the best blend of arm and leg work. And he's the one I probably want to see the most of at this ball game. He's got the most to gain because he's a relative unknown. Whereas some of these other guys, like you say, we know what they are and we know what they are already. Yeah, I've enjoyed watching Carter Bradley the last two years with the Jags, but yeah, I don't think it's going to go any more than that. Yeah, they've, they've looked really good. Richard looked good. We saw him against the Richmond Spiders in the FCS playoff. He had four touchdowns that day, three on the ground, one in the air. So there's, there's a lot of intriguing potential there. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to Gerald and learn more, but possibly the first HBCU quarterback to be drafted since 2006. So one to keep an eye on. Right, let's move it on to the running back rooms. So Team Ina, the four running backs there. I love this group. Imani Bailey, the running back from TCU. George Halani, the Boise State Bulldozer. Blake Watson from Memphis and Jabari Small from Tennessee. Now, I'll leave Bailey alone because I know you're going to do him in a minute. Um, but in terms of Halani, like I say, the Boise State Bulldozer, I know you love him as well. 5'11 and 209 pounds. He's a five-year guy with four years of production. He's always been a Bronco, been loyal to the soil, finishes with 3,606 rushing yards, 26 touchdowns, and he's only ever fumbled six times in his entire collegiate career. He's not an explosive runner who rips off the big chunks. He's the guy who goes and gets the hard-fought trench yards when you need them the most in that physical style that Boise plays. Doesn't do a great deal of receiver work and he's not the greatest pass protector, but you're not drafting him to be that guy. You're drafting him to go out there and get you the hard yards. I absolutely love him. And he's been getting the yards even in rotation because Astrid Diante broke out this year and he's still 
did really well. In terms of Blake Watson, one of the most intriguing guys for me here. So he's been the definition of consistent the last three years. He's 5'9", 195 pounds. He's had 2,000 yards in his two starting years with the old Dominion Monarchs. And then this year, he transferred to Memphis. He's just had 1,151 yards and 14 touchdowns going at six yards per clip for him in that three-year spell. He's got 27 rushing touchdowns. And again, good with the ball, fumbled it just five times. He's added receiving work to his portfolio as well. He's got 800 yards and five touchdowns the last two seasons. Catches 88% of his targets. Good receiver, good hands. As for Jabari Small, he's 5'11", 213 pounds. He's a four-year Tennessee volunteer. He was the lead back in years two and three. But he fell to third in their depth chart this season. He finishes with 2,110 yards, 24 touchdowns, and has fumbled just once on 418 carries. But again, doesn't do much receiving work and doesn't grade well in pass protection. But um, obviously go with Bailey first, right? He's your guy. But after that, there's some very, very intriguing outside running backs here. Yeah, this group offers a lot of difference. You've got the pounders, like say the grinders, and then you've got guys like I thought is it fair to call Amani Bailey? So a scat back. So he's like a book on he's like five foot eight. So Amani Bailey this year, he was the first time starter realistically for TCU. Uh two hundred and twenty-three carries, uh twelve hundred and nine yards at five point four yards a carry of eight touchdowns. So he's trying to fill the Kendrick Miller and Dima had all left because they both went to the draft. Like I say, he's small. He's about 70, 80 kilos, so he's very light as well. So he's got a very low centre of gravity. He's shifty. He's hard to tackle. He's got good top-end speed. Uh, his longest rush this year was for 74 yards. So he's got that last gear that's able to get away from defenders. And he's trying to follow in the footsteps of guys like Devin A-Chain and Juice Vaughn that found roles in the NFL, being smaller. So a comparable build would be the Jets wide receiver, uh, Xavier Gibson. That's kind of like, like say, 80 kilos, like 5'8". That's, that's a fair kind of build. So for me, he's got low centre of gravity. He's difficult to tackle in open space because he's small, he's shifty, he's got good speed, he's got decent hands as well. Where we'll be testing him at the hula ball is, one, can he pass block? Is he a reliable receiver when he's coming up against bigger guys on the outside? And that durability, that that actual physical toughness, can he withstand that? Like I say, being a smaller guy, but if he's able to make himself an instrument on special teams, I think that's probably where some ways he's going to have to make a name for himself at the next level of the hula ball. But he does offer a uh, a good, interesting mix of speed, durability. And also that potential, that elusiveness that you do like from smaller guys that are starting to get in the league. So, yeah, he's going to be like a change of pace, running back two, running back three. But he's someone that could find himself a role and carve out a job for himself at the next level. So, yeah, a one-year starter, but incredibly effective for a Horn Frogs team this year that it wasn't very good. But also, they weren't great under centre. Like I say, quarterback was very up and down player this year, but he offered a little bit of consistency. Uh, and that's Sonny Dyke's offense. So yeah, definitely a name to watch for one of the uh, the smaller, more potential electric guys. I feel. And the stat that 
because when I looked at him that stuck out to me, he was ninth in the country and missed tackles forced. So like, you know, when you're that smaller guy, as you say, I think it was like nearly 90 or something stupid like that. But if you've got that elusive ability, as you say, it, it, it can sort of open gateways up for you that might be shut to other guys his size because if you can avoid the tackles and get out of it, then, hey, great, yeah. Um, there's other guys in there. So Blake Watson would be the other one, I think, for me to look like. You get, con you, you know, you do well for two years at Old Dominion, which we know it's, like, impossible to do there. There was 1,000-plus yard season, one 900-yard season. You go to Memphis, you absolutely kill it there. That Memphis team have been good. He's probably another who would look to shine sort of big this weekend. You'd think with that good level of production, and not on the best of teams either. Yeah, like I say, he's done it at a small school and then went up to a school that has got bigger expectations. Won a ball game, didn't they, Memphis? Because they beat F. Did they beat Air Force? No, Air Force beat James Madison. I can't remember who Memphis beat, but you're right. They did yeah. win a ball yeah, game. Yeah, they did, yeah. So he had a, a productive season. He's shown that he can do it in two offences, two offensive coordinators. He can do the dirty work. He can also finish in the red zone and be a reliable, steady character that can take a good amount of carries a game. So he's not overly, it's not flashy, but I'd say he's pretty well rounded. And I'm a fairly safe pair of hands. So, yeah. In a running back class for me this year that's not top heavy, like there are no big hitters really for me in this draft and running back. So, the middle grounds are where they're going to be scrapping to fight with one another. So, yeah, he's got a chance to stand out from a pack because I, what he offers and Jabari Small offers are quite similar because they're both fairly stocky, strong dudes that want to do the run between the tackle stuff yeah. that barely don't want none of. So, yeah, like they, they do offer that. And there's always a role for that in the NFL. Absolutely. Absolutely indeed. Right. Let's move on to the second group. So the running backs for Team Kai, Deshaun Fenwick from Oregon State, Austin Jones from USC, Tyrone Tracy Jr. from Purdue, and Michael Wiley from Arizona. Fenwick is a six-year guy, three at South Carolina, three at uh, Oregon State, 6'2", 222 pounds. He's a big, beefy boy. He's never really been... A starter. He's only surpassed 100 carries in a season once. He has 2,050 yards at 5.3 yards per carry and 18 touchdowns with just five fumbles. Again, doesn't work much as a receiver and his pass protecting is bad. Um, Austin Jones from USC, he's 5'10", 200 pounds, five years in college, three at Stanford, two at USC, another who has not put up massive numbers. He's got 2,300 yards, 4.7 yards per carry, 24 touchdowns, just four fumbles, limited receiving production, but that's over five years. Um, Tyrone Tracy from Purdue, he's 6'1", 200 pounds. He's coming off a 714-yard and eight-touchdown season at 6.3 yards per carry. He's been a terrific pass protector for Hudson Card, but his previous five years, so another six-year guy, yielded just 237 rushing yards. He had four years at Iowa where he did nothing and then a bit part at Purdue the year before this. He's not surpassed 200 receiving yards since his second year when he had over 500, so I'm guessing he started as a receiver and then moved positions. Michael Wiley from Arizona, he's six foot, 210 pounds. He's been a rotational slash sometimes starter guy for five years at Arizona. In five years, he's got 1,714 yards, 5.1 yards per carry, 16 touchdowns, 
and four fumbles. So that first group ride, very productive, big careers, a lot on there. And then they've paired together all the guys, a lot of the older ones who've had a lot of years in college, but have never, don't really have the mileage to go with what they've done. Obviously, Tyrone Tracy's coming off a really good year. I didn't realize he'd had that many yards, but these are the guys who kind of have a lot to prove because there's not much tread on them. No, and that can work for you and against you. Like you say, there's not a lot of tape, not a lot of production, but also little wear and tear. Like you say, they've they've not had the the physicality and the, the general pounding that other guys have. But also these backs, like you say, two guys over six foot one, two of the bigger backs, like you say, and that some offensive coordinators, some guys do highly crave a physical back that can just shake off a guy, like a Derrick Henry. Like you say, you don't often get them. It's quite rare these days, like say, an NFL running back, like say, is 6'2", 220. And some guys, like I say, there's a lot you can do with that, especially in short yardage situations and blocking. If you can't be a great runner, but you can be a great blocker, that can work wonders for you. That that can keep a roster spot just for you if you can protect a quarterback when it has to be. So, yeah, this group, we're going to see how they compare to the others. Like I said, there's a bit more of an unknown, kind of an enigma, like I said, because they've not had massive workloads. We don't know what they can do when asked to do it, but one of these could turn out to be the, the hidden gem of these eight backs that we've spoken about. So these will be interesting to see from a standpoint where you just don't have the, the actual tape. You're seeing them in front and person for the first real time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, it can work both ways. And, and for the guys who've not done it, I mean, they have, but it's over six years. It's like, it's a long time to spread so little production. So this is a chance for them to show what they can do. I was shocked Fenwick had as little as he did. I thought he had a really good year at Oregon State, but sometimes it just goes to show. You see him a few times and it gives you a misconception. Right, let's move on to the tight ends. Each team has four. So the tight ends for Team Ina. David Martin Robertson from Temple, Cam Grandy from Illinois State, Trey Knox from South Carolina, and Jacob Warren from Tennessee. So Martin Robertson is the one that really intrigued me doing this. So he plays for the Temple Owls. He's a sixth-year senior. He's had to battle a lot of injury problems, including two surgeries. He's had mental health problems on the back of that as well. Um, but I was reading up quite a lot of him, and that's made him like a really tough player, sort of coming out the back stretch of it. Played through a game with a broken foot, which was another injury that he's had, but he's now been healthy for the last two seasons in a row, hence why he's had six years. But he's 6'4", 246 pounds, a really good size for a tight end. He is dominant as a blocker in both disciplines, of the game and you know for run blocking for pass blocking he's really good but he's a pain to match up within the passing game as well he has 900 yards and six touchdowns as a receiver the last two years they create packages for him as a rusher as well he has a rushing touchdown has about 14 carries but they come up with all these special plays for him which is really weird I often see it with tight ends um, he's given up just one quarterback hit in 130 pass blocking snaps. That's it. Not any other pressures, anything else. As I say, the run blocking is the only thing he needs a little bit of improvement with, but he's got the traits to make everything work. He's he's become a real big sleeper for me, David Martin Robinson. 
um, from Temple. Uh, then we've got Cam Grandy. So Illinois State. So he is 6'5", 255 pounds. Got one of those like pencil mustaches, like when a kid tries to copy his dad and it looks terrible. It's anyhow, it made me chuckle, but he's big dude. He spent four years at Division II Missouri State West before moving up to the FCS for one year to Illinois State. He was an All-American on his way to 63 receptions for 617 yards and three touchdowns. Played through the final four games with a cast on his hands and his performances didn't suffer, so another hard-ass there. Didn't give up a single pressure in 43 pass-blocking snaps. Just his run-blocking that needs a little bit of work there. Trey Knox from South Carolina. He's 6'3", 239 pounds. He's a former receiver who turned tight end during his four years at Arkansas. I know him well from then. Hence why the grading's not anything to take notice with, but he's been swapping positions. So it's been a bit of a transition period for him. He has just 1,200 receiving yards and 11 touchdowns in five years, but he really is an underrated receiver again because he's moved to tight end and they've not used him as much. But his knowledge of playing the position, you can see the guy knows how to run a whole different multitude of routes across the formation. Um, he was South Carolina's second leading receiver in yards this year. He's only 312, but that is literally because Xavier Leggett had everything this year. He had like 1,300 yards. Next leading receiver had 300, so it's a bit hard when you've got a star receiver like that. When he settled into the system, the run blocking is really good. The pass blocking is good as well, so another good guy in both facets of that game. And then Jacob Warren from Tennessee, the biggest, 6'6", 241, He's more of a blocker first, receiver second. The run blocking is inconsistent. Like one season, he'll be really good. Then one season, it's a little bit funny. And this season was a down year for him. Not really used as a pass blocker. Has just 607 yards and eight touchdowns in five years of football. But four of his touchdowns came this year as they've used him more of an offensive weapon there at Tennessee, even if he didn't put up the yardage to go with it. Um Intriguing group here, Ryan, first off. Not any that sort of jump off the bell there, but there's a lot of potential in these guys. Like, And, you know, with trade knots, I think it's really hidden because of the position changes there with him. Yeah, tight end is, is a funny one because it used to be an afterthought and now I class it as a premier position. It's one of the most coveted positions in the NFL. And there's so many different kind of tight ends. There's guys that can only block, guys that can only catch, Guys that can do a little bit of both. You can't really go wrong. Like with Trey Knox, there'll be teams out there that say, we're going to put you back to receiver because we think you're a passing threat. There'll be some like, we do want to try you to see if, like, say, if you can be a consistent blocker. Some will do both. So, like, they don't all fit into the same kind of hole. So, they're, they're a very interesting group and they're going to ask them to do a lot of things. When I look at a tight end, I usually say first thing, is he, if he, can he block first? Good. I can teach him a catch. But you catch and root run it, can I teach him a block? I think that's harder. Like I said, because you need to learn basically an offensive lineman scheme to learn how to block in line. And that can be too much for some guys that are also thinking about running routes. So yeah. But yeah, there's a good mix of guys here. Like this, some have got size, some have got the know how how to block, and some have got a good, expanded, decent route tree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to be interesting to see with the tight ends here because none of them are really on the radar. 
at the moment. And we'll move that across then. So the tight ends for Team Kai, Brendan Bates from Kentucky, Mason Klein from Furman, Isaac Rex from BYU, and then young guy, you're going to profile Messiah Swinson from Arizona State because we had to get a Sun Devil in there. So Brendan Bates at Kentucky, 6'4", 243 pounds. Now, he is the epitome of an old-school blocking tight end. Um, he's got one... He's had 1,266 college snaps over six years. 940 of them were blocking assignments. He's been a big part of the Kentucky running game over the last few years. Does all the dirty work required at the position. He's tough as nails. He played through 2022 with a labrum injury, which needed surgery at the end of the season and was the reason he came back for a sixth year to get healthy. Pass protection is good as well as the run game stuff. He's only got 272 yards and two touchdowns in his receiving career. But this is a guy you draft to go to the trenches. As you say, as Ryan says, teach him to block first. Maybe you can get them there later with the receiving ball. He is your old school blocking tight end if you're looking for one. Mason Pline is a monster. He is 6'7" and 250 pounds he's actually a michigan man spent his first four years at division two team ferris state before transferring to Furman, the paladins he's a former basketball guy who turned to football he only had 282 receiving yards and four touchdowns this year but no Furman receiver had above 400 and he had 319 receiving snaps so he's well well versed with his route running he's just not targeted that much um, he does just as much blocking, though. He's given up just one pressure on 35-plus blocking reps, and he's a consistent run blocker as well, which at 6'7". He's quite impressive because the taller guys usually struggle with it more. Uh, Rex is a five-year veteran from BYU. He broke out as a receiver in 2020 in his second year. He had 429 yards and 12 touchdowns, but he's never quite replicated that. He's got 422 yards and three touchdowns this year, but he only bought in 34 of 59 targets. He had three drops, a fumble. He was guilty for a receiving interception, and he bought in just two of 12 contested catches. The fumble cost them their last game of the season against Oklahoma State and cost them a shot-up ball game. Saying that, he's the BYU record holder for touchdowns at tight end with 24. Again, another who's tough as hell. He came back off a big ankle injury four months ahead of schedule before 2022, played the entire season that followed. And like any good BYU skill player, he does a ton of of blocking work. He's never given up a sack in pass pro and he's had nearly 300 reps. He's given up just six pressures in that time as well. The run blocking is high caliber, maybe the best of this bunch there. So three very different, again, prospects, but we're sort of getting into the more run blocking orientated ones now. And then of course we've got Messiah Swinson to come as well. Yeah. Swinson's an odd one because he is the total kind of, Unknown package. So six foot eight, two hundred and thirty pounds. So he needs to put he needs to bulk up. You look at him and you think, yeah, he's skinny. Two years at Missouri, he didn't factor much as a blocker or a receiver. Herm Edwards decided to bring him into ASU, tried to get him going in the passing game. He says he can block and he was willing to block and it's okay, but 
he wants to be a receiver. Like I say, I think he had like 280 receiving yards in like his two years. He just kind of didn't materialize, like I say, but he's got an unbelievable catch radius. He's got, I think he's the biggest of these tight ends for the height wise. He's got a very slender frame that does need to work on. Like I say, so he doesn't have the stats. He doesn't have a lot of tape, but physical size wise, he, if you get in the right matchup, I reckon he could probably dominate at the next level. And especially in the red zone, that's kind of where you want to use him because he's not been overutilized where he's been with the Tigers or the Sun Devils. So he's not coming in with much hype or any much credibility, if I'm totally honest. But he does offer something that is pretty rare. He's just got the stuff he can't teach because he's just got a ridiculous frame that you would want from a receiving tight end. But yeah, I agree. Isaac Rex is the he's the big name of this class here for me. Like I say, go back two years ago. Everyone knew who he was. He was a monster. He was having one of the best years in the nation. So he's shown that he can do it. He can do it before. But yeah, there's definitely a lot here for every kind of offense. They'll be looking at something different. There's a lot of suitors that will like some of these guys differently and dislike others for other reasons. Yeah, I mean, like I say, just in this alone, you've got the you've got the Kentucky tight end, and you know what they you know what they're like. They are all over the place. They they block a lot. They do a lot of physical football. So of course you're going to get good blockers from there. Mason Pline would be the weird one. So a six foot seven guy who can really block well, and he's played basketball. I would assume that would figure into a receiving status if you're doing that because you're big. You can get up. You can do. I don't know if you've seen much of him. At, have you seen much of the Paladins and him there? Because I sort of look at that and I listen, I'm like, there's a lot I'd love to work with there, especially if he blocks well. Yeah, I've seen a bit of the Furman in the last couple of years and they've been in and around trying to make the playoffs. Like I say, they've been a, they've been a reasonably good side of the Paladins the last few years. But yeah, they're a running squad. If I remember right, their offense is pretty run heavy. Like you said there, they're not many receiving threats or not many that have racked up much yardage, but yeah, as a small school guy with like a, a freakish build, he offers quite a lot as probably like a prior UDFA, like someone that you just kind of stash. With tight ends, you can be as old as you want. It doesn't really matter what time you get to the draft because they kind of want you seasoned. But what a tight end needs to do, they never declare usually like as underclassmen. They usually go all the way through school until they're ready because as well as they're kind of like bred, they need like proving time to tight ends. Like it, it's, I think it's one of the harder positions to play as a pro because you've got a lot to do. You're getting a lot that has to do. So age usually never really is a factor of any of these. So these six-year guys, it won't worry them at all whatsoever. So yeah, but yeah, it's a very interesting group. It's going to be hard, let's say, because the tight end group of last year's draft probably going to be one of the best of all time, potentially when it's all said and done. They're following a super hard group. But yeah, these have got a chance to come out because for me, it's not a strong class again either. Like there's some names, if you want to get picked up on day two or three, some of these kids might be able to do it and it starts here. Yeah, exactly. This this is where all the intriguing guys at tight end lines is, hey, they're not many at the top this year. So some of these guys are going to get good looks if they can get to a bigger game as well. So that's everything for the tight ends. We'll move on to the wide receivers now. And oh, 
I've gone through some of the, and there's some very enticing prospects at receivers here. So the wide receivers on Team Ina. So you've got Joshua Cephas from UTSA, Jalen Coker from Holy Cross, sort of Ryan's had a look at, David White Jr. from Western Carolina, Ty James from Mercer, Xavier Johnson from Ohio State, Sean Jones from Maryland and Dayton Wade from Old Miss and getting a big FCS contingent here with the wide receivers. But first off, the guy I like most out of this group, Joshua Cephas, the wide receiver, the star wide receiver from UTSA. He's 6'3", 185 pounds. He broke the UTSA records for most receptions and most receiving yards this year. They were both held by Zakari Franklin, him of Old Miss uh, inclines now. He has 312 receptions, <coughs> 3,618 receiving yards, and 28 touchdowns, and is just coming off his best season with 1,151 yards and 10 touchdowns. And that's with an upgrade in competition from the CUSA to the American, where we now are. He's got elite hands he has never given up a fumble he had just one drop this year he grades 91 plus when it comes to ball protection in the last two years he lines up 60 percent in the slot and 40 percent out wide so he offers great positional versatility there he has nearly 1700 snaps as a run blocker and even as a star receiver has continued to be heavily involved in the dirty work and the run blocking is consistent for those who watch this part enough utsa are were still are a very run heavy team you think he was there in the sincere mccormack days when they just used to run it down people's throats so he is very well versed in blocking and he's very good at it he's only done one year of special teams work in 2022 but he got an honourable mention in the end-of-season awards for his work on the punt return team. So he can do that as well. The red mark comes, though, and for some this will be an off-putter. He is still on probation because he got convicted of a DUI the December before last. Um, so he's got that hanging over him. And, of course, he's played the CUSA and he's played at the group of five most of his career. So that'll be the knock on him there. So I'll stop at this one here because obviously Coca's next, but I don't know, Jess, do you really like, do you like, Cif are you a Cephas fan as well, Ryan? And, and when you've done with that, tell us a little bit about Coca. Yeah, Cephas is by far the most established receiver in the whole group. Like you say, he's he's got an impressive resume at two schools across two divisions, won multiple, or like I say, being in teams that were there to win multiple division championships. And yeah, he's got size, he's got decent length, he's played a variable snaps inside, outside, he's got everything you've asked for, he's asked, done everything you've had. Yeah, discipline, an issue, like I say, when it comes off probation, like I say, that hopefully will go away, no longer be an issue. But I, I, for me, he is the standout of this group. And I think what Andre Yoshivas was last year, I think Cephas will be this year. Like I say, he can be that workout warrior that does find his way to climb up draft bars, yeah. Me, the DUI, it's kind of like the blemish on like an untouched record. For me, it's not overly concerning. Like I say, it, it was a foolish mistake, but we've just seen people go to the draft that, well, they've done far worse, haven't they? So mm. they can't certainly can't hold that against him. But yeah, I like his size of 
strength, size, frame, radius, and like I say, just general being a wide receiver one for four straight years, essentially, like that's not easy to do. But yeah, he's shown that he can do it at two different levels, essentially. Yeah, and it comes from the system where, again, you've you've got to block at UTSA. You've got to be good at it because that's the bread and butter. It's what you do. This is the, I get the same vibes as I got from Puka last year. I do with him genuinely, so that's where I'm at there. Um, I say next up on the docket is Jalen Coker from Holy Cross, so I know you wanted to look at him a little more in depth. What did you see with Jalen? Yeah, this kid. So this kid's a star, so... Four years, he's combined for a total of 163 catches, 2,684 yards at 16.7 yards, average a catch, and 31 touchdowns. That now makes him the all-time program leader in receiving touchdowns and in receiving yards. This year, he was actually nominated as a finalist for the Walter Payton Award. That is a top FCS player in the year, so that was a nice way to cap it off. He has got a plethora of just awards, and being in like first and second All-Star Patriot League teams, he was part of three consecutive championship winning teams, like say with the Holy Cross Crusaders. Great frame, six foot three, two hundred and thirteen. That's how you want to build them. If it comes off a conveyor belt, you want your kid to look like that. He's super experienced. He's physical. He can play on the outside. He can work on the inside. Like I say, he's a very willing blocker as well. Strong kid. Like I say, he's got all the tools. He wants to work hard. I say he's he's won. He's been loyal to a team where, for me, after two years, he maybe could have gone to like a, a small G5 school. No doubt about that. But he stayed there for his whole four years and he seems very likable and he's racked up just a nice rap sheet of what he's done there. So he makes a very intriguing, like, day three UDFA kind of guy that you kind of stash on the practice squad and eventually his time may come but you call him up to the roster. He's got everything you need, and I expect him to put up on a clinic. Like I say, they're, they're not a small school that don't have credibility because they're very well-known, and the coaches will definitely know who he is. So I'm very excited to see him go up against FBS level. As you say, FCS will be the only reason people knock him or try to use that against him when they go up against some of the bigger schools. But I don't think he'll have any issue with some of these defensive backs from the, the, the D1 schools here. Like say Cork is someone that I really like and especially for Detroit, we could use some height and strength on the outside in the future. So he's someone I will be watching and I think a lot of people will be as a a potential like free hit. Hey, if you're good enough, if you're good enough, Cooper Cup came from Eastern Washington and look at what he's doing. Guys won a Super Bowl, so it can be done. So there's two other FCS prospects in this group as well. So you've got um david white jr from the western carolina catamounts he's 6'4 200 pounds played at valdosta state i believe their division two prior to his two years with the catamounts first year he played primarily as an outside receiver on 89 percent of his snaps he had 375 yards and five touchdowns but then in year two he moved to the slot and he played 95 percent of snaps there so a complete position change for him had 519 yards and six touchdowns the run blocking gate grades have been consistently good over the last two years for him as well and then you've got the big play bear 
Ty James, who is another very intriguing guy, six foot, 193 pounds. So in four years with Mercer, he has 171 receptions for 3,370 yards and 30 touchdowns. And he has a yards per reception average of 20. He's coming off back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. He's predominantly a wideout, plays 86% of his snaps out there. Mercer won their first ever FCS playoff game against Gardner-Webb a couple of months back. He had a 100-yard outing in that one. Run blocking is not his forte, but he's not bad with it. But, you know, this is some serious competition coming up from the FCS, right? The, The big play bear... He's in there as well as the other guys. You know, this the big platform for them to prove themselves. Yeah, this will definitely be the most interesting position group, I think, of the potential hula ball. Like, say, lots of small school guys, names that you've just never heard of or you've never come across. And those are kind of the ones that usually stand out the best on tape. And the NFL, like I say, it's now it's a passing league. So some of these guys, like I say, they will get a chance and with spring league football and everything now, like they're here and like I say, they if they do well, they'll be playing pro football at some level or another. So yeah, like they're going to be, and they'll know each other really well. A lot of these guys, they will have played one another. So yeah, it's going to be fun to watch them go up against, like say a good defensive back group as well. There's some absolute studs in the DB group and a lot of them are FBS and like power five school guys. So like they're going to come up against them. I hope they use this opportunity to play against guys if they will never play against until they get to the league. So it's going to be a serious step up in competition for some of these receivers. But some of them will do well. Some of them will handle it better than others. Yeah, yeah. They say you've got two serious studs in there. Out of the other three for this group, so you've got um, Xavier Johnson from Ohio State, and he's spent five seasons at Ohio State, and you think... Ohio State receivers, you could name them all generally, but he's mainly been a feature on special teams. He didn't see any serious action on the offense till his final two years. And even then, it's been minimal. He's been used as a running back. He's got a total of 353 yards and a touchdown, and he runs at an average of eight yards per carry. As a receiver, he has 26 receptions for 329 yards and two touchdowns. One of those was in the playoffs against Georgia last year. He's done kick return work. He boasts a solid 21 and a half yards per return on 28 attempts. He stayed very loyal to this team and done everything asked of him without ever getting a serious opportunity there. Um, Jishon Jones from Maryland. He is 6'1", 188 pounds. He was the freshman who burst onto the scene against Texas and he's remembered because his first three touches of the ball in college football were a passing, rushing and receiving touchdown. Um, But injuries have derailed two of his five seasons as a Terp. But he finishes with 2,000 yards and 14 touchdowns, and he's coming off an 800-yard season. He's a slot receiver. He works punt returns unit on special teams, but he did have three muffed punts this season. But he's usually solid, and his run blocking is pretty decent as well. And finishing this group off with Dayton Wade from Old Miss. He's 5'9", 175 pounds, He's been the number two wide receiver for the Old Miss Rebels this year behind Trey Harris, who has just broken all the records. He's racked up 829 yards and four touchdowns. Those are both more than half of his production 
in his five years of college. So he's had one big year in five. He had three years at Western Kentucky before transferring to Old Miss and working his way in the team. He's done some work at running back. He's a good run blocker. He's done a lot of kickoff return work as well and a small amount on punt returns. He's a 70-30 split in favour as a perimeter receiver, but he's got plenty of experience in the slot as well. I mean, that's kind of a story, those three there, of guys who it never happened for or it happened like right at the very end and there's a lot to be said about them there. Yeah, those guys that have had to bide their time, they've had to do the dirty work or just stand on the sideline until there's an injury or coach called them in. But yeah, they offer explosiveness though, like you say, being returners, being special teamers, they can be that guy that goes on and makes one play that changes a game. So those, like you say, will want to return kicks. And that will be another asset of well, another route they take to in the pre-draft. Like so if you can be known as an elite returner, some teams will cover that, cover that very highly. So yeah, like I said, Maryland, good, explosive passing offense. Like I said, so Jashawn, like I say, he has shown some flashes. Like I say, he's shown some sloppiness as well. Like I say, muff kicks and stuff like that. That that cannot give up. He's shown that he can be a threat in kind of all the phases. And some guys will look at that and think. They'll give him a go, like say, like let's get him some touches, like all over the place. So yeah, like it's a very interesting group. Is this this, this these six? Like I quite like these. Like they all have some very varied skill set. What would you like? So Xavier Johnson, like five years at Ohio State, he has never made it out big as a receiver there. But like he, they've asked him to play running back, and he's done that to eight yards a carry. They've asked him to do bits at receiver, and he's he's produced when it mattered he's worked special teams pump returns kick returns like if you're an evaluator and he's coming up to you and you're like you've spent five years in college and on the stat sheet you've done nothing but you've been very loyal to your program like julian fleming left this year because he threw his toys out the pram and he's had a lot more opportunity than he has there but i don't know how would you rank it you know if you were like evaluating this guy would you take that loyalty aspect into account because i feel like it does mean something that he stayed for so long and done just whatever they've asked and has stayed with him. But people won't see it that way, I don't think. No, a lot will say, why didn't you just leave to go try carve out a role somewhere? But there's no guarantee that that never happened. It could have gone somewhere yeah. and just been incredible. He remind, he strikes me as the kind of guy that he's going to have to go play in the UFL. Like I said, to show he can do it on a consistent basis, a good year or two. Next thing you know, he's back in the NFL, like you say. So he's someone that, like you say, he's older, he's experienced, he's been in a lot of room. He's worked with like some of the best in the game, which you can say, like, I've learned from some of the best guys in the game, just buried on the depth chart every year. Like, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. So, yeah, he feels like one of those guys that you'd love on a practice squad. You may yeah. never need him, but that is not wrong with having a career basically being on a practice squad. And one day, you never know. It might just happen for him. So, yeah, so he feels like someone like experienced. That'll work in his way. Like you saying, he, he does what's asked of him and that that will carry a lot of weight with some people. He's dependable. Yeah, yeah. I I, I would hope he'd given a chance because you look and you're like, yeah, you, you deserve it for staying that loyal to a team. Uh, moving on to the second group of wide receivers for Team Kai, you've got Amarian Brown from South Carolina, Jalen Calhoun from Duke, one of the more recognisable names in this cycle, Devin Carter from West Virginia, Hayden Hatton from Idaho, Tejuan Palmer from UAB, 
Tavion Robinson from Kentucky and Casey Washington from Illinois. So Amarian Brown, he's 5'7 and 160 pounds. He's listed as 5'9 on PFF. This is where the All-Star Games start exposing some of the lies about heights here. But Amarian Brown is 5'7 and 160 pounds. He's a slot receiver, broke out at Georgia Tech with a seven-touchdown season his first year but he has just two touchdowns in the four years. Since then, he's got just 1,100 yards in five years. He works punt returns and coverage for special teams. He's a good run blocker as well. Jalen Calhoun, he's been a steady presence over five years for the Blue Devils. He's 5'11", 191 pounds. Perfect build for a really good slot receiver. He has 3,000 yards and 17 touchdowns for Duke over his time there. And they've not always been as good as they have been this year. He's had to work through some really tough times there. Again, works special teams on punt returns. The numbers are a bit meh, but he gets in there and does what he needs to with them. He has got nine dropped catches this year, though, which I think was more than the last three years combined. So just something to watch out for with him, but still one of the bigger names on show this week. Devin Carter from West Virginia. He's a six-year vet. He's a traitor as well. Five years at North Carolina State, and then he decided he wanted to go to West Virginia. He's 6'3". 214 pounds. He's an outside receiver. He's got 2,405 total yards, 12 touchdowns in his career. Good history of special teams work as well. Um, but then you've got the FCS guy again, just one on this side. But Hayden Hatton has a ton of college production for the Vandals. So he's 6'2", 205 pounds, primarily an outside receiver, 70% to 30 in the slot, but that means he's got good experience at both. He's got three and a half thousand yards, 33 touchdowns for Idaho, but in his last two years, he's had two and a half thousand yards and 25 touchdowns. He's recorded back-to-back 1,000-yard -back seasons, done a lot of special teams work, but it's kind of gone down over the years as his star has increased. Um, I'll stop it there with the first four, but... Like, the FCS are bringing some firepower to this. There are some genuine bona fide stud playmakers you're getting from there that we get to see, really, for the first time on a big stage. Yeah, and for the Vandals, it all clicked this year. Idaho went on a playoff run. Like I said, they were one of the best teams in the nation. So their offense, like I say, very high-powered. So for uh, Hayden, he's going to be quite an intriguing prospect because, like I say, he's got... He's got tape, he's got stats, he's got actual, like I say, work to back it up with. He's got a decent size, as like you say, an outside receiver. So for me, I think he makes quite an interesting prospect. Like I say, will work on special teams as well. So I think he's probably going to be one of the guys to watch on this side of the team. And then on the flip side, you've got someone that is kind of a household name. The only real one in the group, like Jalen Calhoun. A lot of people know who he is. I'm quite surprised he didn't go to the senior bowl. So I say I'm pretty sure I say five years, but yeah, he's gone on the hula ball. But yeah, he's been in some questionable offenses. He's been on some downright bad teams, and he's actually had to he's had to make magic happen sometimes where just not a lot went right for them. And that shows a lot of loyalty in itself. I'd say he's worked with some guys like he was there in the late Daniel Jones years, wasn't he? Yeah. I think yeah, I say maybe last year, but yeah, he's seen rotation at quarterback, he's seen different coaches, different offensive schemes, but yeah. He stayed loyal. 
he's helped them wherever he's needed to. And he's had some decent stats. So for him, it will probably work in his favour that people will go there. And I know who he is, but I kind of expect him to be the, the veteran leader on this team. The young guys around him, they're going to look up to him. And the guys and the coaches will look at how he works with that. Does he go out there and just do his own thing? Or will he be like, will he offer them advice? Like say someone that is experienced at a power five school that they, they may look to him. So yeah, he's got a lot to gain in his process. Yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of the other three guys on there, so you've got Tejuan Palmer from UAB, the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, so he is a hybrid receiver for UAB. He, it, the, the rate is 60 to 40 on the outside. So he's 60% on the outside, 40% in the slot. He's had a really good year, 861 yards and seven touchdowns for him. He's an elite run blocker, the best of all these guys when it comes to run blocking. And you think again, UAB, Dwayne McBride a couple of years ago, this is a team who love to run the football and you've got to do your fair share, even if you're a star guy. But like again, versatility, production, blocking, maybe one of the best all-round guys of these guys here. Then you've got Tavian Robinson from Kentucky. He's primarily a slot receiver. But again, it's 60 to 40, so he does a lot of work on the outside as well. He's consistent. He's had, fa- he's had five seasons where he's had between 400 and 600 yards receiving. So he's always been like a reliable wide receiver too, and you give you a steady haul. He's got 16 touchdowns to go with that as well. He's highly versed in special teams on both kick and punt returns as well. And then Casey Washington from Illinois, he's their outside receiving threat. He's 6'2", 200 pounds, had 670 yards and four touchdowns. That represents his best season in college, by far the one just gone, but it's been a very disappointing one there for Illinois. But I mean... You know, we talk about Calhoun there, but Tejuan Palmer could be the other guy. Like, UAB sneakily produce guys who come into the NFL and have a good shot there, and he might be the next. Yeah, they've sent some very credible talent to the next level. Let's say some pros. So, And they're always quite a offensively heavy kind of school. Like you say, they go out there and they can score points, and they do usually pass the ball really well. And that does start with the receivers. So, yeah, this group, Feels more evenly mixed than the last one, where you've got some like proper heavy hit wide receiver ones and then like essential special teamers. This group seems to have more well rounded guys that can play on the outside in the slot, but can also do the special teams work. They can block, they can be on the kickoff team, like say, and return. So there's some very well rounded people on this side of the group. Like saying, you've got some young ones that have got not a lot of experience behind them, and you've got some of the older heads that have been there and done it essentially yeah absolutely I, i'm looking forward to seeing these receivers tomorrow there's so there's just like a it, it's like a pick and mix so many different types and then you'll see someone float to the surface for this um let's move on to the offensive line to finish this off so start with the tackles so the tackles on team Ina. you've got travis glover from georgia state cameron wire from tulane Xavier Gadlin from Liberty and Michael Jarrell from Findlay. And I'm not going to lie, I can't find a damn thing on him because it's a Division II school. But Travis Glover is a five-year vet at Georgia State. He's 6'6", 323 pounds. He's played 2,392 snaps at left tackle. 
426 at left guard and 1,306 at right tackle. He's coming off his best graded year, 72.7. He gave up five sacks, including four in his last five games, but he's still graded just below 80. Um, run blocking took a big leap this year as well. OP graded at 71. Cameron Wire, he had a bit part role at LSU for four years. I remember us talking about him in the preview uh, for the Sun Belt before the season, but he came to start at Tulane, played nearly 900 snaps at left tackle, but he graded poorly due to his run blocking. It wasn't great this year for the Green Wave. He only gave up two sacks in pass pro where he fared much better. Um, Gadlin is the exciting one. Um, so he's 6'4 and 320 pounds. He has over a 1,000 snaps at left guard, a thousand snaps at right guard and a thousand snaps at right tackle. And he's also played center. He's had two years at Liberty, which followed his first three at Tulsa. Uh, he gave up four sacks in 2022, but they were moving him around the line to fill up holes. He didn't settle down. But this year, he played exclusively at right guard and he's dominated. Not a single sack or quarterback hit given up. He plays on the field goal kick unit as well. So assuming. They're going to give him a run out at tackle for this, but he's played all over. Michael Jarrell is 6'5 and 294 pounds. But I swear to God, I can't find anything out about him otherwise because Findlay Division II schools, you just can't get stats for them. So you'll have to watch him during the game. He's the one player I couldn't get. I'm sorry, but some good tackles there potentially. I mean, you've got one highly experienced one at Georgia State, but Liberty... We know what their trenches have been like recently. Gadlin's potentially a breakout guy here, right? Yeah, and <clears throat> key word for offensive line usually is versatility. I say, can you swap sides? Yep. Can you play tackle guard? Yep. If a centre goes down with an injury, can you snap a ball? Yep. And like, if you've done it across a thousand snaps of each, some will look at it like, we don't like it, you don't have one position. Some will be like, we love that. Because you'll never be a starter, but injuries, offensive linemen, you can lose two or three a game for a whole quarter. Just plug and play and just do a stellar average job. So offensive line really is that one where you don't need to be brilliant at one thing. You can just be kind of good at everything. Or you'll get someone like, say, this guy that's like an anchor that just has his position. He's played his whole career there at it and he has just held his own for four or five years. So... Yeah, I looked at these groups, like both teams, and I thought, I didn't know any of them, to be honest. I, I knew one of them, the one guy I picked that I already knew, but yeah, that a lot of teams here, or players here, I'm going to see for the very first time. And seeing how they gel together, playing on offensive line of guys you've never met before, up until like four days where you're supposed to play a game, like, it's interesting, like I say, because the drills where you go straight up against the D-end or an outside linebacker to hit the bag, like, it tells you a lot about a guy, so offensive line usually are the ones you see the clips of on Twitter against, like, the D-line. Like, they just go hammer and tongue, and these are the guys that they kind of excite you. Because, yeah. like I say, also for our standing point, like I say, we're a year or two away from maybe kind of rebuilding part of an O-line. We, our front office, will be watching this very closely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And scouts from every team go to this, so the Lions will have guys there. Um Weirdly enough, the guy you've picked 
is been declassified as a, a, an interior lineman for this, but we'll get to him in a minute. The tackles for Team Kai, Frank Crum from Wyoming. Then we got a really intriguing pair from the FCS, pair of left tackles. We got Mike Edwards from Campbell, Lorenzo Thompson from Rhode Island. Then we got Doug Nestor of West Virginia and Jeremy Flax of Kentucky. So Crum has been a cowboy for five years. He's 6'7", 315 pounds. Uh, he was usually the right tackle, but he swapped over to left tackle this season. So he's got 825 snaps at left tackle, 2,288 at right tackle, and he's got some sparing snaps at left guard. He has consistently been a good run blocker for this team. And again, Wyoming, another team who love to run the ball. The pass pro has been up and down. This year was a down. He graded at 58. He's not bad. He just has some really rough games which bring down his scores over the year. There were three games this year he struggled. But outside of that, pretty reasonable. So something to work with. Um, first of the FCS guys, Mike Campbell. So he has been the left tackle for the Fighting Camels, and I will forever love that name until the day I die, the Campbell Fighting Camels. For the last three and a half years, he's got 2,000 snaps at the position. He's 6'7", 355 pounds. He's improved year on year. He had his best season by far in 2023. He posted elite run blocking grades. Pass pro, again, really good outside of a couple of bad days when they played Richmond and Elon. He had two 90-plus graded games, but his third best performance of the season came against UNC on the road. That is Power 5 UNC on the road. The Camels got blown out. He didn't give up a single pressure on the day, and he run, he run blocked really well. I think they got just over 100 on the day, which good for them against that level of opposition. Then Lorenzo Thompson for Rhode Island, he's even more experienced for the Rams. So he's 6'7", 295 pounds. He's got 2,500 reps at the position. He's got three full years as a starter under his belt. The pass pro, very impressive. Now, he's given up eight sacks over the last two years, but as Ryan will attest to, the Rams love to air the ball out a lot. He does a lot more pass protection than he does run blocking, so the numbers always get higher for these guys there. This was a team who put up 35 on Georgia State this year. They nearly upset them, Rhode Island did. I'm pretty sure they nearly upset Central Michigan as well. They were a very well-versed offense there. I'll start with those three, right? There's, again, two vastly experienced FCS guys coming up here, and then you've got from Wyoming. These are some seriously experienced tackles who looking for jobs in the NFL, and there's a lot to like about these guys. Yeah, like I say, these guys, like at first glance, they've got the thing you want. They've got size. All of them mean six, seven. They're, they're fucking massive, aren't they? they? These are like, these are big dudes, like I say, varying weights and heights, but like I say. But then also, they've all been multiple year starters, essentially at one position as well. They've made one position their own. And for me, I don't really care what level you play at. Like you say, like defensive linemen and defensive ends, like you say. Like, yeah, they get better, but the the longer you go up against each other, like, it kind of just all blurs into one, like you say. And, yeah, like I know for a fact Rhode Island have played multiple Power 5 scores the last couple of years. They've caused some upsets. They've come close to some upsets. They're a really good FCS team at Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And, like I said, they really held their own against, like, Power 5 teams in recent years. But, yeah, like I said, these guys, they've got everything to gain 
after watching what like Quinn Miners did a few years ago, mm-hmm. I'd say the All Star game, a D three player from like just gone some white water, like no one had ever heard of, and suddenly like he's like the talk of the nation. Like they could very much be that guy too. And there's plenty of teams looking to upgrade their own line, so they're certainly going to like the chances. Like I say, some will be run heavy, some will be pass heavy, some will be somewhere in between. But yeah, like I say, they're uh, that everyone has got a different blend and like will like something different about one of these guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the last two tackles, Doug Nestor from West Virginia. He's a five-year veteran, two years at Virginia Tech, three years at West Virginia, 6'7", again, and 319 pounds. Played for four years as a right guard, but West Virginia moved him to right tackle this season. It paid off. He didn't give up a single sack. He posted elite pass protection numbers. The run blocking needs a bit of work, but it's a position transition year, so it's never easy. Even between guard and tackle, learning to run block again at different positions is hard. Again, vastly experienced. 2,500 snaps at right guard, 774 at right tackle with a full season starting at the position. Flax, he's a two-year starting right tackle at Kentucky. He's 6'6", so he's a short arse, 325 pounds. Had a rough first year. He gave up 13 sacks and quarterback hits and he was penalised eight times. Big improvement second year. That came down to four sacks and quarterback hits and just two penalties, but he struggled both years in run blocking and that Kentucky team has not been good. But again, add Nesta to this. They seem to have gone after offensive linemen who were just like they've just been around forever and they're battle hardened. Yeah, they're going with guys like I say that have been there and done it for a number of years at the position have got like a good number of actual snaps under their belt. And to go from like guard to like most of your career and play tackle for a year, that's hard. Like that's a big responsibility. And I think some people underestimate what it actually means to play different event offensive line positions. Like say, guards often pull. Like say, they're often asked to like lead block and things like that. A tackle is basically just protect the blind side or just be. You've got to dominate. Like you say, you may not see that much run blocking action. You may just be there to physically take away their best pass rushing threat. So, yeah, like I say, these guys they're all massive, they're all experienced, and they've all like played a multitude of positions to at some different level. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then let's finish it off with the interior offensive line. Um, I'll go through all of them on both teams and then we can discuss a few of them maybe. So on Team Ina, you've got Gunnar Britton from Auburn. Auburn, sorry. Brady Latham from Arkansas. You've got Matthew Jones from Ohio State. In fact, I should probably list off where these guys play just to make it easier. So just bear with me. So Gunnar Britton, he is the he's been a left tackle, left guard, and right tackle for Auburn. Brady has been the center at Arkansas. No, he's been the left guard. Sorry, my bad. He's been the left guard there. Matthew Jones has been the right guard at Ohio State. You got Noradin Nuili. He's been the left guard and right guard for Nebraska. You've got Michael Furtney. He's the right guard from Wisconsin. You've got Duke Clemens. I mean, God, I've, I've not heard half of these. So you've got him from, he's the center and the left guard from UCLA. You've got Nick Gargiulo. He is the, he's been a left tackle, left guard and center for South Carolina. 
And then on Team Kai, you've got Clark Barrington from Baylor, who Ryan is going to look at. He's classified as a left guard for this. He's been moved this year. Jacob Joe Hanning from Furman. He's their left guard slash right guard. Got Jarrett Kingston, who is... He's played left tackle, left guard, right guard, and right tackle for USC. You've got Dalton Tucker, who's the right guard from Marshall. And you've got Brian Hudson, who is the center and right guard from Louisville. And you've also got Jack Freeman, who is the center at Houston. So few guys there on the interior. But I know, Ry, you chose to look at Clark Barrington. Yeah, so Clark Barrington. Interesting character, so... In his freshman year, he broke out with the BYU Cougars. He was an official honourable mention in PFF's All-Pro team. That would have been 2019, because he's played four years as a left guard. So he had two years at BYU. Uh, he was perfectly clean. Like you say, he basically took all his snaps at left guard. After two years, he transferred over here to the Bailey Bears. 2022, he had his worst year because... Played left guard, but he gave up four sacks. And now he's only given up five sacks across his whole career to date. So that was by far on paper his worst career. This year, he was asked to play centre for about a third of the season to cover with injury and would return back to his natural left guard position. So he was moved out of position this year. So, But he did an admirable job. Like I say, he's uh, had like 3,500 plus snaps across a career that's been, I'd say, 85-90% a left guard and a bit of centre. He's got a good build, 6'6", 300 pounds, so he's well built for a guard. Stocky, got a good bottom base. So, yeah, arms, handwork, arms, not the longest. I'd say he could use a bit better. Sometimes can be penalised. He can be sometimes beaten off the, uh, the snap of the ball. Don't always react the quickest, which does cause an issue, but I say he's shown in the past that he can dominate. He's had a bit of an up and down time in the last couple of years, but yeah, I say he's been at two good schools that do want to run the ball. I say two power five offenses. He has got a good resume of work behind him, and he is a project at the end of the day. I say he's shown that he can snap the ball and he can help a quarterback out when required. But yeah, he's always going to be an interior guy. I say he's tried out too before, like partial snaps. It just didn't work. I mean, like, it just didn't have the athleticism. It just didn't have, like, the range as well. Like, the long hands, the big hands, the things kind of crave for. He's more suited to playing inside and uh, trying to take on double teams and things like that. But, yeah, one of the more household names will probably say in this list, but that's his lot. I say a lot of unknown guys on this list. But, yeah, started off really hot in the middle. Kind of patchy, but in the end, he's finished fairly strong in the Bears this year and did play two positions with amount, enough snaps to actually count this year, essentially. I mean, if I remember rightly, we were asked to do some work on Clark Barrington. This is probably where it comes from. I think we got asked to do some work on Clark Barrington last year because everyone thought he was going to come yeah. out, and, and he didn't. He stayed, didn't no, he? No, he so. struggled last year, yeah, because like yeah. he gave up quite a lot of horries and a few sacks. So, yeah, he's throughout his career, he's, kind of, he's given up a lot of horries. Like, he does average quite a few horries, like you say, and pressures, but... Whether it's the quarterback or whether or not he does recover, like the sacks don't really reflect that either. Only five across, like, say, 3,500 snaps. So it's kind of hard to know with him, like, say, how much of that's him and how much was the QB escaped or the defender just didn't get there. But yeah, he's certainly a intriguing guy that could 
fill in as a as a depth role. Like I say, as that I think that's what a lot of these guys will aim to be. But yeah, but a lot of teams that's kind of what they're looking for anyway. Yeah. Well, especially for the more established schools, yeah, the FBS ones, they'll probably, but then you've got the plucky FCS guys who are going to come up and say, look, I've just not had a chance to prove it. And the guy who I would recommend to watch here is Jacob Johanning. So he is the left guard slash right guard from Furman. Again, the Paladins sending a couple of players to the Hula Bowl here, but he's basically been a four-year starter for Furman. He has 2,640 snaps overall. He's got 1,903 at left guard, where he's played primarily his first three years. Um, But he's had to play 68 snaps at left tackle this year. He's got... 654 at right guard where he's played this year. He's got 10 at centre as well, so he's had to cover three positions this season, but primarily the right guard. But anywho, out of all that, he's had 1,307 pass-blocking snaps. He's only ever given up three sacks and three quarterback hits. And overall, just 18 pressures. I mean, he's been tremendous in pass blocking. The run grade has gone up year on year from 61 up to 77, which he's gone with this season. I mean, he only gave up a sack and two quarterback hits. And guess who that was to? The Montana Grizz, Ryan's team to got all the way through to the FCS Championship final. So that's the level he's been at there. But like these guys, you know, we've seen... We drafted Corby Sawstall last year quite high up and nobody had really paid attention to him here. But Joe Hanning's another really impressive prospect from, as I say, a Paladins team who were really good, Ryan. Yeah, like I say, part of a, a good offensive scheme at a smaller school this year. Like I say, he was asked to do things that weren't natural to him. Like I say, play positions that he might not have wanted to play. I didn't feel comfortable to essentially throw in a deep end. Like I say, play a best part of a whole game left tackle and then also play under center and got respect that about a guy it's kind of things like that that will make the difference and it does make it easier to to read between two teams or two guys that play defensive line someone that has played three positions even sparingly like say and gone out there and done a, a credible effort when needed to so yeah he's someone like said that will definitely be watching because there's a lot of power five schools we've read out like I say, he's one of the only FCS kind of like versatile tackles here. So I think I'd be looking at him more than some of the other guys, like I say, that have gone up against that top level of talent. Let's see how this guy does match up. Like I say, if he can hold his own. And if he doesn't stand out against the rest of them, I suppose that's him doing a good job. Let's say he's going to be lined up against everyone that's gone up against yeah, top tier talent. Absolutely, and there's some really good talent on the defensive line who we'll discuss next time that we're back here. The only other guy I would like to draw mention to a minute is Brady Latham. He is the left guard from Arkansas. I've watched a lot of Arkansas these last few years. Wonderful in pass protection. He graded 80 over the last three seasons on an Arkansas team. The offensive line has been pretty good for the most part. Not in the run game, but in pass protecting KJ. They've been amazing, and his season has been really good. It's sort of really good in pass blocking. It was a bit down on the run this year. This Arkansas team were not good this year, but he maintained it up at that point. And I'm very interested in the guard class this year. He's got 3,174 snaps at left guard for the Razorbacks. He's got he's got minor snaps at left tackle and right tackle as well. But if you're looking for guard prospects, he's one of those who's right up there for me. But yeah, there's some 
there's some good talent to be had here at this point. So that is that is the offense to say we'll do the defense next time around. The game will have taken place by then, but still a lot of these defensive guys have not been heard about. So we will be looking over them and we get to kind of have a look at what they've done during the game as well. So we get to give them a bit of an analysis and we can analyze some of these guys on the offensive line. Um, but just to finish this off, um, Ash asked us a couple of questions with it, but I guess we can ask it for offense and defense. He asks, who's your favorite sleeper who is attending? Like, so on the offensive side of the ball, who's the favorite guy you're looking and been like, yeah, people are going to know about him when this weekend's done. Probably Davies Richards, the quarterback. I, I, I think I'd probably have to say him because he has been pretty electric. And like you say, we talk about small schools, but then you talk about a HBCU and like they're probably even lesser known, even at the same level of centuries in FCS. They just get literally no national attention and people just, just, just won't know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree. He'd be right up there for me. I I think either Joshua Cephas or Xavier Gablin would be my ones who I'd be most excited about. So yeah, I, th I think I will go there, but I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of these, especially the FCS guys. Like, you can get so much out of there with them. Uh, the other two questions he did ask are about next week. They're about Harrison Mevis. We'll do special teams next week. And Akeem Dent, who is one of the safeties. Um, so, yeah, that is your roundup of the Hula Bowl offensive side of the ball and then as I say we will go through the defense next week but plenty of great talent to look out for there right let's move it on into the news segment um and then we'll talk about the championship games so obviously ride big news that broke in college football this week completely overshadowing Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick and all that sort of stuff Nick Saban six-time Natty winner with the Alabama Crimson Tide, who's made life miserable for the SEC, for Oban, for all those guys for, you know, time longer than their fans can tell now, has retired. He's done. Michigan kind of beat him to the wind, made him realise that his time had passed. And it, it was funny because we discussed last week after the semi-final game that thinking it feels like his time has passed and his style of football has passed and... And obviously he thinks so too, but huge in the world of college football. He's He's been the guy for a long time and now college football needs to find its new guy. Yeah, like I say, he's just, he's one of those guys that everyone knows of. Like I say, he's one of the first names you think of, like I say, the Crimson Tide. And he's kind of like just been the godfather on it for like the last 10 years. Like when you look at like some paper, it's kind of easy to understand. He's done everything. There's nothing left to do. He's never been interested in the NFL. Like I say, it's primarily it's just college, like I say, working with student athletes and getting the best out of them. And I read somewhere he's had more first-round draft picks than losses, which is just mental. He's had like 40 first-round players picked, and he's only had like 22 career losses. Like, that is just an incredible stat. And yeah, he is leaving behind one of the biggest legacies in student sport athletes in, in like American history. Like, Nick Saban will go down in history. It feels like the right time. He's also 72, like Pete Carroll, I believe. So, like, he ain't no spring chicken. The days must feel longer. Getting up is probably just a little bit harder. Look after himself. Like I say, it, it's a long season. And it never really stops with recruiting. Like, it's a full-time round job. And he clearly feels right now that the program, okay, it's struggled, like I say, 
in the last 18 months, two years, but he feels like it's in the safest, best place he could leave it. And the roster is in strength. And the people that are around him can just go out there and replace him. And things will just carry on. And I think that's pretty safe to say with who we're rumoured that they're getting that I don't think they're going to be going away anytime soon. But yeah, it's surprising. But when you look at it also, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it did feel like his time was... Like, of course, again, we, we said during that Michigan game, it's like just refusal to adapt, I guess, his game plan. And even though in the face of that it wasn't working, he still stuck with it. And maybe he's like, yeah, that's it. It's kind of done now. We can't just play old school bully ball. You've got to play modern day bully ball like Michigan do. I saw the other wonderful stat that is, you know, is all his draft picks have earned something like $2.3 billion in the NFL. Like, that's how much talent he sent they've gone and made a combined total of 2.3 billion dollars in the nfl that's like that's insane like a college coach as you say to get student athletes that much money and to be able to get them such successful careers that just shows how wonderful he's been so all the best for him and we did see the effect straight away though didn't we because ryan williams the five plus star receiver he went on twitter he decommitted within like the hour yeah like he said saban's gone I'm gone too. Like Nick Saban has to be one of the best recruiters in like American collegiate history. Like say he could get anyone. I don't know what he did or what he told them, but yeah, it's when see you, how that happens now. Yeah, when you've got a history of you know being great in terms of creating talent, then you know kind of people go there. It's it's weird because you'll see some schools that will pull five stars in for one position because they're always really good. You see Iowa pulling the high star defense defensive guys because they're like, yeah, I'll be a first round draft pick one day in this system. So, but yeah, like I say, Ryan Williams is gone. So the 30 day window is open now for players to hit the portal or decommit or all that sort of stuff. So we'll see if any more do. It's going to be intriguing. But the news that came out just before we came on air is that potentially this, this didn't happen too long ago. They've already got their replacement, and I believe it was confirmed, but they've gone for Kalen DeBoer from Washington, which, I mean, if that is true and is confirmed, that's one of the most meteoric risers we've seen in college football in some time for a coach. Like two years ago, I would say three for Perseverance Way, he was coaching Fresno State. Like to a Mountain West title, nonetheless, but still got them there. Goes to Washington, two successful years with them, gets them all the way to the Natty this year, gets coach of the year, just about to embark on a big venture to the Big Ten. But now he's going to stop via way of the SEC and Alabama, which is which is just a crazy meteoric rise for him. I mean, you know, kudos, he's earned it, but... Like, the expectations, if he thought there were expectations on him at Washington, good Lord, this is the biggest pressure seat in all of college football now, right? Like, no leeway will be given to him whatsoever. But, you know, he's earned it. Yeah, like say, his rise is crazy, yeah. He's gone from having Jake Hayner, that is a quarterback <laughs> as Fresno State, trying to take down like the likes of Boise. And then, like I say, when he got the move to Washington, well-deserved, like I say. He's also no spring chicken, like I say, he's about to turn 50. He's been in the game a long time. Washington, we thought, we liked that hire. We were proved right why we liked the hire, like I say. 
great first year. Second year, took them all away, fell just short. And I suppose I can't really blame the guy for riding the crest of a wave. Like say, in his like his fifties, like it's a short lived thing, like and just I don't know, like you say, you see the mass exodus, like say of Washington are about to lose everyone to draft and thinking, Do I really want to do a rebuild? Do I also want to like maybe like say travel like again to the Big Ten like and he's thinking the biggest seat is just open in college football and yeah, he's pounced and he's filling the biggest shoes of like last five, ten years. And that will be very difficult. But he obviously looks at that job and thinks that roster really isn't far away. It's not as far as where some people think it is. He thinks he can still win with it. And he obviously thinks that there's tough staff there right now are guys he can work with. Or if he's going to bring some people with him, is he going to try poach some of them there? But yeah, awful for Washington. What an awful way for their season to end. Like suddenly they're again searching for a head coach and. Don't get me wrong, it's a very lucrative job and lots of want it, but like you say, like, they could struggle, like say, now being so late to the party in the head coaching cycle. Yeah, so this came as a shock. I saw yesterday that Lane Kiffin was ruled out. Dan Lanning said, I'm not leaving Oregon. And then guys like that, like Steve Kelt, Sarkeesian, a lot wanted. But yeah, I thought this guy would have been like the sixth or seventh choice, to be honest. So yeah. Like they keep us guessing, don't they? they? Do like to keep us on our toes. They do, and now it's one of the most intriguing storylines at all of college football going into next year. How will Kalen DeBoer do at Alabama if indeed it is him? But there's no leeway, grace so. period for him. Like no, you go in there and you make an SEC championship game essentially. Well, like you say, you know, Jalen Milrow is now established there. He's an established quarterback who people expect to go on and try and win the Heisman. I don't believe in that myself, but that is the level of which they expect and. I don't think there's that much in terms of going to the draft from them this year. So they should have a lot of guys potentially coming back who are more seasoned, more experienced. And yeah, they'll just have a fantastic class coming in. Like he's got that they've got the new quarterback coming in this year. I keep forgetting his name, but they've got the new just insane, just insane, isn't it? He comes in this year. So he's got his quarterback of the future as well, providing he doesn't decommit. So it'll be interesting to see what Washington do. Do they promote from within? <sighs> Oh, I don't Do they know. Have to, I don't think they've got the power to go and steal someone like Alabama have done to them. I can't see them doing it. I can't see them paying the buyout for someone. So, well, and it's the whole they're in limbo now. And it's the whole coaching of coaching a West Coast team who plays in the East Coast most weeks. I mean, for a coach, it's going to be a nightmare having to be away from home all the time, having to do all. You know, it's very difficult. And as you mentioned, that Washington team is getting rinsed by the draft, like. All the receivers are going. Quarterback's gone. I think this is Dylan Johnson's class as well, where he's gone on the defensive side of the ball. Braylon Trice has gone. The DT, whose name I can never remember, is always gone. Edifuan Olafosio's he's coming up. He's gone. Like, so many of their playmakers, gone. You're building a lot of that team from scratch next year. So Washington, they are now the story. And they've missed out on a lot of the head coaches, so... Yeah, very intriguing indeed, but that is the big news that circulated out the coaching ranks this week, and we'll check back in on that at some point in the near future. And then to finish off the show today, there were, as I say, two championship games gone on the weekend that just happened. We, you'll have heard about them enough by now, but we do want to have a chat about them here. And the first one, 
Obviously, the FCS championship game between the Montana Grizz and the South Dakota State Jackrabbits. Ryan has been pulling for the Grizz all the way through. They made it. And, you know, Ryan, how, how did things go in the FCS championship game? I think you kind of predicted what was going to happen, or it was one of the scenarios that could, but it was it was a tough one. Yeah, it went how far it would, one-sided. So... Yep, the South Dakota State Jackrabbits have won national titles back-to-back. They're now on a 29-winning game streak. So that's like two and a half years. Like I say, right now, they are a a train that is, the brakes have stopped and no one can stop them. And yep, they won by a score of 23-3. Now, it doesn't tell the whole story. It was only 7-3 at the half. So like, they were in charge. They dominated this entire game start to finish. But the Grizz in the first half, were able to keep them out and they were able to hold their own and they held Mark Gronowski who was pretty much running the show from quarterback to very little damage but the second half of Bocha was a big star like you say it was scoreless for the Grizz SDSU put on 16 uh, 16 points out of the half and the, in the end the Grizz were just never able to mount a comeback so led by uh, Gronowski through for like I think it was 175 yards a touchdown interception uh, Isaiah Davis got it done on the ground with 87 yards on the touchdown and the returning draft entering Jaden and Jackson Yonke brothers, they combined for 121 yards and just 9 catches with a touchdown so they they got what they wanted, they said we're coming back to defend our title and they did and now they both go to the draft so on the other side of the ball though the Grizz got dominated, so on the Grizz is rushing, leading Russia only had 18 yards on the entire day. The quarterback was sacked four times. One of them was a strip sack and a fumble, and the entire team collectively threw a touchdown and fumbled four times. So, unfortunately for Montana, who I've rooted for all year, it couldn't have gone much worse. I'd say the run got stuffed, the ball got taken away, and ball security on day as a whole was, was pretty poor in general. So, any time they thought they got momentum, it was just taken away. And yeah, South Dakota State right now, they are the, the premier outfit of FCS football. Like I say they're heading into a game on the 31st of October next year, going for a 30-game win streak when they open up. So yeah, right now they are just running away with it. But they're also going to lose a lot of talent. Anyone draft eligible will go, like say, some guys may want to try jump up to potential Power 5 as well. So they're going to use, lose guys like the Yankee brothers, so it's going to be interesting to see how they rebuild, but they've got a very solid car and a great coaching outfit. So yeah, in the end, I knew who were going to win despite what my heart told me. I knew what my head was going to happen, but yeah, in the end, it was very dominating fashion. And yeah, I think, was this the last game in Frisco, Texas? I can't remember if the SES title is moving next year. Like I said, but yeah, this was one of the last ones, but yeah, it went, unfortunately, how I expected. That's it. They got through to the final, so you 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 did it right there. You got you got there. One seed versus two seed didn't quite work out. Are those brothers have they, they declared for an all star game? Do you know? Are we going to see them? Because I'm you, you talk about both weeks. I'm intrigued now, but I've not they're seen seniors. Much of them. But I haven't seen an all star game, but I'm, their eligibility, I believe, is gone. So but they yeah, are so coming they to will, the draft. They will be going to the draft, yeah, because they're they're both I think fifth or sixth year seniors. We'll might come across them eventually because we will go through the Shrine Bowl and Senior Bowl rosters as well. But yeah, that's it. South Dakota State champions again. I mean, 
do you put him past doing a three-peat next year? Do you feel like there is anyone who can stop him, like, at this early juncture? Like, say, the Greys, if they do okay, Cameron McDowell comes back and some of the better players will be there or thereabouts. North Dakota State, as usual. But it will be their first year, like, say, without head coach. Like, say, it's gone, so their coaching tree will determine that as well. So, yeah, I think those are... It's going to be the usual suspects. Yeah. Like, say, your Montana's, your Montana State's. We'll see if they... Steve Albany are good again next year. This year was, I don't know, was it a fluke going through at number five? So we'll see about Idaho and Albany if they were dark horses this year after they've turned a corner and they're now going to start to uh, be more frequent players from next year on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will look forward to that. No doubt it will come around again before we know it. And then the last one, the main one of them all, the Natty, took place on Monday featuring Detroit's own Michigan, the state, been looking for their first title, I think, since the shared one in 1997, if I remember rightly, that people were saying there. But playing Washington promised to be a ding-dong affair. And, you know, I, I'm going to go straight out on this and say I was very disappointed by this game it is not what the scoreline... Well, I kind of say, I say that. Michigan win 34-13, to 13, but it was 20-13 to 13 going into the fourth quarter. But at no point in this game were Washington in it. Michigan came, set the tone. Donovan Edwards had a 41-yard touchdown run to start this one off. Washington responded with a Grady Gross field goal. Then Donovan Edwards had a 46-yard touchdown run as Michigan absolutely kicked Washington's ass on the ground. Michigan then extended the lead with a 31-yard field goal. Washington got a touchdown just before the half. Jalen McMillan, three-yard pass from Michael Penix Jr., made it 17-10 before the half. Um, exchange of field goals in the third quarter. Michigan first from 38, then Washington from 45. Grady Gross had a really good game in fairness to him, but then it all fell apart. Michigan just kept giving Washington chance after chance after chance to level the game up. They didn't take it, and then they took over. It was the Blake Corum show. He got two rushing touchdowns, one with seven minutes left, one with three and a half minutes left. It ends 34 to 13. Michigan, 450 yards of offense. Washington, 301. But get this Michigan only passed for 140 yards. They rushed for 303 yards, averaging 7.8 yards per carry on the ground. Washington had 46. Um, and as you say, Rye, this was a big disappointment. But you kind of have to ask to risk it a little bit because we said Dylan Johnson was going to be the big part of this. Can they get a run game going? I mean, the dude lasted one snap and then could clearly see he was, they rounded off all the injuries. He has four separate injuries he's playing with and you can clearly see he's struggling. They can't get the run game going. Penix can't get going. This was not a close game at all, despite the scoreline saying otherwise. No, it was super disappointing. And, yeah, I learned two things, like say, Washington, lack of running back depth, and, frankly, how one-dimensional they are. Because, like I say, Dylan Johnson, like I say, just couldn't let go, and everyone behind him just not adequate enough to help Penix Jr. and to make the Michigan defense respect the run game 
because it didn't. There was absolutely zero respect for it. And when you're throwing at guys like Will Johnson and Mike Sainer still, who are about to be drafted, and this Washington secondary doesn't get credit for just how clutch it was this year. Like I say, the throws, some of them weren't great from Penix. He had an off day, but yeah. If you take away the run game completely and you can kind of just sit back on balls and just, just, just jump routes and just take chances, you can just gamble. And yeah, Penix, yeah, the turnovers came and in the end it just it nullified anything that the Washington could get going. So yeah, the Michigan game plan just deserves all the plaudits. Like I said, they made one of the best teams in the nation last couple of years look divisively average and made Penix look terrible. I say so. Yeah, fair play to Michigan. Like saying both sides of the ball in every phase. In the end, they were pretty dominant. And yeah, Blake Corum going into the draft with just so much momentum behind him now, he could be one of the first backs taken off the board. And Donovan Edwards as well showing himself to be not just an understudy, but also he's equal when needed to be. So yeah, it was just a two-headed threat. And yeah, JJ McCarthy didn't have to do a lot. Didn't put the ball in harm's way. I think it, I find it very hard to evaluate him as a draft quarterback. Yeah, uh, I have no idea. I'd, for me, he's not a first rounder. No, but he like say never puts the ball in harm's way. But yeah, he's had such a great rushing offense that he's never had to put it or risk it. It's very hard. But yeah, the game unfortunately it went how I thought it would be. I say no run game for Washington. You've got to throw a dangerous secondary too many times. Once you go back to the well too many times, in the end, like I say, well, you get stung. And they got stung multiple times. It's not necessarily on Penix or the receiving car. It's just the fact that the whole game plan kind of fell apart. They're in they're a plan A team. But no plan B. No plan B, really, unfortunately. And that, yeah. And some will abuse this game to hold Penix back and say he's like a second rounder. Some will some will say like now he showed the flaws, but it was just a well-drilled defence that just made life on him for the day. Terrible. I see him, Braylon Trice was nullified in this game too. That yeah. Michigan O-line again, just once again, doing everything it can to keep J.J. McCarthy cushy. He was just chilling in that in that pocket most of the day. I think he got sacked once and that was it. And it felt like Penix was getting sacked every drive. And that that's the thing, it's... They've just kicked it. I think the only team that you can say has legitimately stood up to Michigan this year is Alabama. Like, they're the only ones who've given them a semi-competitive game. Everybody else has just been steamrolled like from start to finish. No one has stood up to them at all. It's just crazy how dominant they've been. And I'm the guy who's, like, very critical of them, like, give them extra scrutiny. And even I think, you know, they, <laughs> they've just absolutely done it all, but... You're right there about Trice. I don't I don't buy the thing he's a first round pick. I just I think in games like this, this was the game where he had to make some impact splash plays for me if he wanted to do it, but I don't buy it. I don't know about you, but I'm I, I would hate it if we took him. It's one of those where it's the biggest stage they needed him to be at his very best. And he was pretty non existent. And you look at that, was that because they did such a good job of nullifying him or he went into a shell and shrunk and couldn't live up to the moment and help his team win. Yeah, it's, it, it could be a mixture of both. And yeah, I see a lot of mocks have him in the first, a lot have him around us. And we've seen flashes of it, a lot of it. But yeah, when it really mattered, he didn't deliver. 
So it's going to be really difficult now. It's going to be interesting to see how he goes forward working out, especially at the combine and things like that. And his pro day, like, we'll just see, did he just have an off day or is it something more that teams will worry about? Uh, we'll find that out pretty quickly, I imagine, in the next coming weeks. Yeah, because, I mean, you think, like, Dylan Horton last year, like, TCU needed their lead edge rusher against Michigan. They they needed a special performance, and he got, what, five sacks, four sacks? Like, he made fun of them, and he stood up, and he was one of the big reasons they won that game. They needed something from Trice like that, and I, I was just not impressed at all. So, the only first-round pick I want from them is Roma Dunze, and that is it. <laughs> Outside of that, nope, I'm done. I'm good. But yeah, Michigan, natty champs, well done, excellently deserved. And it's hard to see it. If, if Harbaugh stays, it's hard to see anybody getting at them. Like, next year's going to be tough. I'd love to see him come up against Georgia, like mini-dynasty versus mini-dynasty, but we'll, we'll see. So that is the college season done. So we are firmly on the path to the draft now. All our episodes going forward are going to be on the players on the guys who are coming up as say next week, we will be looking or we'll be reviewing the hula ball and we will be looking at the defensive side of the roster as well first. And then we'll review the game, do it in chronological order like that. And then it'll be the East West shrine bowl. It'll be the senior bowl and lots of other good stuff. We've got guests coming on soon as well, which is going to be fun. So yeah, we've got a lot to look forward to here, but that is everything from us today. Unless there's anything else you want to mention first, right? Anything else? Or are you all good? Nope, all good. Like you say, now I suppose the actual hard work kind of starts for us. Yeah, it does. Trying to trying to do all these guys and that, and it's it's ever such a pain in the ass when you've got a busted up rib as well because it's so hard to sit there and focus and write about it. I have to keep getting up and moving, but it's what we love doing this for. So, if there's anybody you've heard us talk about today in regards to the hula ball, you're like, oh, I'd love to know a little bit more about them. Let us know. We will deep dive them a bit more. As I say, when you've got a roster of 131 guys, you kind of got to keep it brief just to get little bits out there about them. We'll do the same again next week. If you want us to deep dive anybody, let us know. We shall do it. Next show's coming up. The main podcast. We will be back on Monday reviewing the LA Rams playoff game. Hopefully, hopefully having won. Otherwise, God knows what it's going to be like if we lose. But yeah, we'll be back Monday for that. The live reaction show with Matt and Ash will be on Sunday during the game as well. We'll be one in the morning here when it kicks off. So to come and give us some support that way. And then myself and Ryan will be back next week, as I say, to review the Hula Bowl and to look at the defensive side of the roster as well. So it's going to be a lot of good fun. Don't forget you can find us all over Roar of the Lines UK, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, all that good stuff just type us in and you will find us thanks to everyone who is watching the playback of this i will hopefully try and be around in the chat but leave any questions any comments and we will get back to you as always but for now just remains for me to thank ryan to thank hank and we shall see you again very soon enjoy the playoffs go lions let's go out there and be the rams one pride Thank you for supporting the Roar of the Lions UK podcast. You can find us on our socials on YouTube at Roar of the Lions UK, Twitch, Twitter and Instagram, ROTL underscore UK, and on our website, www.roaroftheliondsuk.com.